0: and we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD I'm Gregory Berg I'm excited that we can be spending most of today's morning show talking about the latest so-called dinosaur dig out west in Montana with uh, four representatives of the paleontology program at Carthage College. First of all, the boss is with us, Dr. Thomas Carr, who, of course, has been with us any number of times, uh, who is director of the program. Uh, as uh, also, also, we have uh, had frequently on the program his colleague, Dr. Megan Seitz, who is the preparator of the paleontology program. And uh, we have two other uh, folks joining us as well. First of all, a former student that is a Carthage alum, Brady Hobach. Uh, class of 2020, who now works for the paleontology program as a part-time preparator, so at, at the side of Dr. Seitz. And a current Carthage student is with us as well, Doc, uh, <laughs> Dr. Nathan Egeman <laughs> I gave you a nice promotion there just now. Just plain old Nathan for now, and who knows what's uh, what's in the future, who is a classical archaeology uh, major at Carthage College. And all four of them were on the m- most recent dinosaur Uh, dig out west to Montana and so we're going to be talking about that uh, today. Just so you know at the very very end of the hour we're going to be giving you a brief preview of the first film that opens the UW Parkside Foreign Film Series. That film opens tonight but we'll spend most of the hour with our friends uh, the dinosaurs and uh, with these four guests. We welcome all of you to the morning show. Glad you're here. Dr. Carr, sketch for us the history of the paleontology program and specifically how long uh, you and uh, students and colleagues have been uh, making this trip out west to Montana.
1: Right, so back in 2004 I was hired by the college to start a paleontology program uh, which would consisted of three major uh, aspects. Field work, uh, an active lab, and also an academic program at the college. And so I hit the ground running. Uh, I started the field program in 2006, and on the heels of that, you know, activities in the lab also started. And I formulated a slew of courses to teach students, and uh, I think we've been in pretty good shape since then. Uh, We're growing in terms of the number of students that we attract. Uh, This year we have a total of 10 students, and uh, that is an increase over the past several years. So I think we're doing quite well uh, academically in terms of, you know, the academic program, but also scientifically. There is a pretty big scientific return with the number of and types of fossils that we find from year to year. Very good. Explain this site
0: out west, which has been the, the focus of some of these uh, field expeditions that have occurred over the years.
1: Right. So we collect on public lands in southeastern Montana. And so we're there with You know, we're permitted to collect fossils and dig them out of the ground. Uh, Those public lands are regulated by the Bureau Bureau of Land Management, or, you know, the BLM for short. And um, it's, we have, the American West is divided into a a checkerboard of, of public land, private land, and state land. And most of what we collect on are many square miles of continuous BLM land, but there's also a few patches to the west of that that we've started to explore in the last couple years, and which have turned up some interesting things.
0: So tell us uh, exactly how many times you have been to this particular site, and what kind of determines that
1: calendar? Well, the, the lands include exposures of, of bad lands of a very specific slice of time in Earth's history, and that's the last million years of the age of dinosaurs. Uh, these are terrestrial river deposits, collectively called the Hell Creek Formation, and so there's fossils of the classic Hell Creek dinosaurs, T. rex, Triceratops, Edmonosaurus, Pachycephalosaurus, Ankylosaurus, and also just the whole fauna is there too, crocodiles, fish, turtles, you name it, and plants. Uh, we actually have a collaboration with Northern Illinois University where uh, scientists there Uh, comes out and collects plant fossils. So we're getting a really very detailed snapshot of the last million years uh, throughout the entire section. And so our goal is to understand exactly what was happening in our area 66 to 67 million years ago and how that compares regionally. So are you able to
0: go nearly every summer? And typically, how long are these uh,
1: exhibitions? so we're on for two years and off for a year, and that tracks the, my J-term schedule. <laughs> so uh, so we're off in 23, and we're back in 24 and 25, and then just that pattern repeats. And I think this field season was my 14th. Yeah, my 14th. And what did COVID do to that, that timetable, if anything? Nothing at all, because when COVID hit, that was our year off. So we didn't really miss a step at all. So the timing uh, on that aspect did work out, of mm-hmm. course, not for really anything else. <laughs> Very good. Well, I'm glad there was
0: some silver lining someplace in that in that year. Uh, Dr. Megan Seitz, who is, you are the preparator, and uh, remind our listeners, uh, including any who not heard any of our previous conversations, what's wrapped up in that term.
2: The interesting thing about dinosaurs is that they've been in the ground for millions and millions of years, and we find them, and they're wonderful. But they're not always in the greatest of conditions when we find them. Sometimes we find them just in time. Erosion is definitely ongoing in Montana. It's a very active environment with wind and rain and snow and sleet. So when we are lucky enough to find a dinosaur fossil, we often need to take very tender, loving care of it. Mm -hmm. So once it comes back to Kenosha, to the museum, A lot of the bones need to be cleaned, and some of them need to be either put back together or stabilized so that they stay together. Mm -hmm. And that's a preparator's main job, is to take care of the fossils, both fixing them if they need it and just making sure that they stay in good condition. And that might mean using light manual tools, brushes, gentle picks— um, we use a machine called an air abrasion that kind of sandblasts gently with a, a fine powder um, to take care of the lighter weight, but uh, or thinner layers of rock. And then we also use several kinds of chemicals to help keep the fossils together, and some archival materials, so acid-free cardboard, for example, um, some special foam to cushion the fossils and keep them stable. Mm.
0: No small matter. And its I'm sure it's meticulous work that requires a lot of patience. And I know that now you have a uh, part-time assistant who makes a difference. Do you want to just say a quick word about Brady before we meet him?
2: Sure. Well, as you said, Brady is a Carthage alum. And as a student, he did some volunteer work with some turtles. So it's not just dinosaurs. We've collect lots of different animals to understand the entirety of the environment as best we can. And Brady did a research project on turtles and then started volunteering also as a a person in the lab doing this kind of prep work, whether on the turtles, dinosaurs, anything else we might throw at him. And since we've been going out for so many years, we collect a lot of fossils, and it takes time. It takes real time to do all that cleaning and preserving and stabilizing. And so we've had a backlog of materials from previous years that have just been sitting, waiting for attention. And although I do a lot of work, I can't do everything, and neither can all the volunteers. And so having an assistant makes a big difference there.
0: Very good, and that assistant again is Brady Holbach. So, Brady, tell us a little bit about what prompted your initial interest in all of this as a as a Carthage student. I mean, did you come to Carthage with an eye towards participating in the paleontology program, or was it for another reason?
3: Um, yeah, when I initially went to or went looking for colleges, um, Carthage was definitely my main um, focus simply because Um, I still wanted to stay in state. I was still a bit nervous about going out of state, paying the extra money for that. So Carthage having this paleontology program was an absolute um, excitement for me to have because there are very few paleo programs um, within Wisconsin. You have Carthage, you have Madison, and a little bit with Milwaukee, but that's about it. So to have a smaller school where I could really focus in on the subject matter was absolutely perfect for me, and I'm so glad I got to be a part of it.
0: Excellent. When you undertook this, did you have much in the way of interest and or even understanding or awareness of the work that a preparator does, or has that been one of the things that you've really learned after beginning all this?
3: So I knew um, what a preparator kind of did, but I had never actually done any of that work. I was from... um, the middle of Wisconsin in Portage, uh, where paleontology is not very well known. I was known as the dinosaur guy around town. That's how, <laughs> that's how well known it was. So coming to Carthage was just a brand new experience for me in terms of actually learning and understanding what the actual work goes into with both paleontology, being a fossil preparator, and as of recently, more in terms of collection management and how that works. Excellent.
0: Good. Well, and we'll hear a little more uh, later on about uh specifically the work that uh, that you and Dr. Seitz do uh at some of the most interesting uh information that we've gotten from these in, uh, these interviews. I do want to uh, bring in our, our our fourth guest as well Nathan uh, Higeman. am I saying that correctly? Uh, Higeman. Okay. Uh from uh, originally from Michigan uh it sounds like what drew you to Carthage was not specifically paleontology but something uh maybe somewhat related tell us what brought you to Carthage and and then how you found your way into the paleontology program
4: well what brought me to Carthage was I was looking for a place where I could get field experience because I what I wanted to do was archaeology so I wanted to go abroad and you know dig up some Roman ruin something like that and a lot of places didn't have anything like that but then once I found Carthage like this is exactly what I needed or wanted, so that's why I came to Carthage. And what was the next question?
0: Uh, the what? F- how did you find your way then into paleontology? Oh, yeah. thank you.
4: Yeah, the way I found myself into the paleontology was more out of necessity, as the college sort of got rid of all the programs I came there for. So, but once I, you know. It wasn't any contest because I kind of wanted it to do both things. I wanted to go to France to dig up Roman ruins. I also wanted to go to Montana to dig up dinosaurs because dinosaurs are always cool. <laughs> but, yeah, that's how I f- found my way into the paleontology program was, you know, out of necessity because I needed the credits for my classes. And, and, and
0: I suppose it, it was kind of the, the next best thing to what yes. your initial interest had been. Yes. Very good. Dr. Carr, when we look at the paleontology programs and these field expeditions especially that that occur out west, uh, how many students and participants are we talking about who are really officially a part of the program versus others who kind of come from other academic disciplines or more as, in a sense, from just out of amateur
1: interest, so to speak? Right, so the field program is divided into two parts. The front end, the first two weeks, is uh, the field course that Dr. Seitz and I co-lead. And basically, our numbers are capped by the house that we rent. And so there's a capacity there of, of 15. And so, you know, we'll have maybe uh, 13 or a dozen people, whether students or volunteers, at any one time. Um Our paleontology track students do take the field course, and they take that once. And then in succeeding years, they often return as volunteers. And actually, I'm very happy to say that we have quite a few returns, uh, including alums uh, such as Brady and a former student of ours, uh, Amelia Zietlow, who's at the American Museum of Natural History, doing a PhD there. Uh, So at any one time, the crew is at least is 15. Uh, Sometimes it's a little bit above that. Uh, We have collaborators from other institutions and they'll rent places to stay in town and join us early in the morning. But generally, it's a crew size of 15. I think it was on your last visit to
0: the morning show that you might have mentioned how dramatically different the experience is now. Versus once upon a time when there was no house to rent and yeah. uh, and you were out there camping. I mean, just on the surface, oh, camping in Montana, that sounds like it'd be fun, but it sounds like most of the time it wasn't all that fun.
1: Yeah logistically it's bottom line, it's a waste of time. Um, you know, in terms of hauling all of our equipment out, including water into remote areas, putting up tents, and then just being exhausted for half the day. Uh, we've become much more uh, productive, um, and we have a much happier crew. Uh, sort of the key to all of this is to make sure that the crew is is in a good mood, and that means real infrastructure. So we we rent ATVs to take people out to the fields. That cuts down on hiking time. Uh, the house that we rent has you know air conditioning, mm-hmm. uh, hot and cold running water, uh, porta pots. Um, shower, this sort of thing, sort of all the creature comforts that we need, a fridge. Uh, We eat very well. I actually think that that the food the students and volunteers make is better than than what's in town. Uh, So it's uh, just night and day. And so we have a happy crew, and we're much more productive in terms of the time we spend on the field collecting, which is what we're there for in the first place. For those of you just joining us, we have four guests in our studios
0: for uh, today's morning show talking about the paleontology program at Carthage and their most recent field exhibition uh, out west to Montana. Uh, Joining us, Dr. Thomas Carr, director of the program, Dr. Megan Seitz, who is the preparator, Brady Holbach, who is a part-time preparator working with Dr. Seitz, a Carthage alum, and finally a current student, Nathan Hegeman who is a classical archaeology uh, major but uh, who has become involved in the paleontology program as well. Uh, Dr. Carr, just sketch for us in general, and I'm afraid I have to be kind of brief, but sketch for us kind of, kind of how this work is done, I mean, in terms of what happens through the course of a typical day. How are, the, how are those days put together and how are all these folks organized in terms of the work that they do and where and how and
1: so on? Sure. So uh, we get up early and people have to have breakfast and be ready to go at 7 a.m. And at 7 a.m. we assemble at the ATVs and we drive out and the mornings are spent in quarries. So there are a lot of fossils in our area, including dinosaur skulls and skeletons. And most of those are triceratops, which is a huge herbivorous dinosaur. And so we have a backlog of at least a dozen Triceratops. And so in the mornings, half the crew will be on one Triceratops quarry, and the other half will be on another one. And then it gets really hot. You know, even by 11 a.m., sometimes it's it's close to unbearable. And in the afternoons, if it's bearable enough, we'll prospect, which means we'll go to a new area and look for new fossils and collect fossils from the surface and identify potential new quarries. And then around 4 p.m., we hop back into the side-by-sides, that's what they're called, the ATVs, and we go back uh, to the house for dinner. And if we have any energy left, uh, we may head back out for an evening prospect. That's a day in a nutshell, and it's mm. it can be a very exciting day from right. day to day. So-
0: the, the outset is when you are working on fossils that have already been found. Yes. And so is that mostly work in terms of removing those fossils little by little, bit by bit,
1: it could removing be the, them from the ground? It could be the full spectrum from uncovering new fossils to jacketing and collecting jackets. So, it, so in any given quarry, there is sort of a spectrum of activity. The idea is to collect everything, but a whole bunch of things have to happen for each bone to be collected, uncovered, you know, trenched, jacketed, flipped, capped, carried to a side-by-side. So all those activities are happening almost in parallel with each other, and often there's a rush to the end when things get completed. Right, right. And so that prospecting in the afternoon, that's where
0: you're going someplace where at the moment you haven't necessarily uncovered anything but hope to hope to find evidence that there are fossils there.
1: Yes, and when we do find localities, they could be a a skeleton in the ground, so we document its location and and prioritize it for a future year, or we'll find something called a microsite, which is a whole mix of fossils that have been dumped by a river, and we may return to that for a couple days if it's a huge microsite, and we have several microsites like that. Wow. So (laughs) there's a range.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like there's no shortage of things to do. And Dr. Seitz, it's it's interesting. I think sometimes when we hear about what a preparator does, it sounds like it's almost all stuff that you do back here at Carthage and the comforts of your of your lab. But you are actually on site in Montana, as was Brady, and of course as was Nathan too. But so your preparatory work is not just when things come back to Carthage, but even on site, uh, that's where your duties, in a sense, begin. What are you busiest with on-site? And, Brady, feel free to, to join in.
2: Yes, so since we have such a large crew, we can't all work at the same place at the same time. So as Dr. Carr said, we usually run at least two quarries, and if we're prospecting, we're usually going to at least two places, maybe with half the crew or perhaps a third of the crew if Brady's leading the third one maybe. So, it, as you said, it does start in the field, and it, it's a real benefit to have people who are who have been in the lab but have also been in the field, because then you see it from start to finish. You maybe know what areas of the fossil might be in most danger. Perhaps it was exposed um, first by the wind and the rain. Perhaps there was a sagebrush growing up out of it, and mm-hmm. there might be some roots embedded in the fossil. Um, that happens a lot more often than I'd like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're very stubborn. Um So we do some initial preservation out in the field. There's only so much we can do because of not having the proper tools and equipment. And also the wind, <laughs> it tends to blow the dirt right out of the crevice that I just brushed the dirt out of. Thank you very much, wind. So, But we do our best, and we at least do some initial preservation. We have some gentler glues that can be easily removed. So if they do get dirt and dust blown into them while in Montana, we can remove it back in the lab. But we'll start that process so that the bone is as stabilized as possible before we bring it back.
0: Very good. Yeah, I can see if you didn't do that, then all kinds of nasty things could happen just uh, in, in in the long, long journey home. Yes. Brady, uh, tell us what some of the most challenging aspects are of this purport, pr- pr- preparatory work done on site.
3: Um, on site, probably the biggest challenge that most people don't really try to think of at first is just the fact that um, when you do find a bone in the ground, the first thing you the first thing you want to do and can only think of is just I want to get this out, but you have to refrain and hold back that feeling of just trying to remove this as fast as possible, and just slowly go about um, uncovering it and um, solidifying it with like paraloid or a type of uh, dissolvable dissolvable plastic to keep it um, safe. So. You have to really focus on just being mindful that this is a very fragile object. This is something you can't just rush into, take out and say like, look what I found. <laughs> um, it's a wonderful feeling once it is out, but you have to um, keep stock of what you need to do at the time, which is just slowly uncover, um, protect it where it needs it, and also keep sure, make sure that you have a proper pedestal when taking it out. Otherwise, if you just get it where there's barely any dirt underneath it, it could very likely fall out of the jacket when you try to flip it.
0: And so we're talking about all kinds of time. I suppose even with a relatively small bit of bone, and I suppose most of what you're dealing with are pretty small pieces, right?
3: So I mean it can range. Sometimes you have bones that are a couple feet long, sometimes you have things that are just like six inches that could fit in the palm of your hand. and In either case, you need to keep that level of mindfulness and dedication to properly cleaning it and protecting it. Um, Otherwise, you might have just bone rubble at the very
4: end. Wow.
0: So, Nathan, was this your first field exhibition out to Montana? Yes, it was. So tell us what you found maybe most unexpected, I mean, most surprising and most challenging about this, this kind of work.
4: The most unexpected thing was how pretty it was out there and how great it was to be out in the field for me at least because I enjoyed every single day waking up at 6 a.m being out at the ATVs at seven and just being outside with like no internet or anything like that for the two weeks that was that was the most unexpected thing for me is the enjoyment of that wow the
0: remoteness of all that and I suppose dr. Carr that that's Uh, probably a really important part of this experience for everybody who participates and and, and in some
1: ways probably aids in the focus that's required to do this well. Yeah, we've, you know, for many people it can be a a life-defining experience. Uh, It's a unique setting, um, doing a very focused uh, task for, you know, a large scientific project. And it's a time for people to that, that people do take to reflect on on where they're at and, and that sort of thing. So that 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 aspect of it, I, I enjoy seeing that that it goes a bit beyond the, the mundane tasks. Um, it becomes a, a larger thing for quite a few people. Right. So you were telling me before we went on the air that
0: uh, Nathan had a hand in one of the most uh, exciting discoveries in
1: this uh, most recent field exhibition, right? Uh, well, Nathan was involved in helping to collect a fossil that I found the previous year. And uh, you know, there's so much going on that I can't give my attention to everything. And maybe Nathan can tell you a bit about that.
0: Please do. What, what is it that you were able to uh, help uncover?
4: Yeah, so what I was tasked with doing was a um, maw. Uh, we were going to trench and hopefully dig out a maw, endomontosaurus tibia. And most of it had already weathered away, but Dr. Carr made sure what was exposed stayed there and not eroded out. So what me and two other people did was we began trenching around it, and then after we had a trench made up a little, we started to just slowly find the rest of the bone. So half of it was already, like, exposed and sun bleached. But then we managed to get, like, six more inches and, like, the rest of the tibia out and, you know, uncovered. Was, and that took a lot of brushwork, dental picks, stuff like that. And that was all really fun, laying on the ground and just slowly, <laughs> slowly working away at the all hard clay. So.
0: And and I mean, are we talking about hours or days or weeks? I mean, just how long are we talking about in terms of working at this this tibia?
4: Uh, hours, days, days of work, hours at a time. So it. We would be out there for like three hours, get a little bit of work done, and we were out there about three times in total. And we got most of it trenched out and most of it uncovered at that time. Very
0: good. Dr. Carr, tell us more about this specific dinosaur and uh, the significance
1: of finding this tibia. So it's uh, a shin bone, the tibia. It's the main weight-bearing bone of of the leg, lower leg. and. Edmonosaurus is a relatively uncommon dinosaur in our area. It's maybe a bit more common than T Rex is, uh, but it's nothing like Triceratops. And so, any Edmonosaurus bone we find is important information uh, for us. And this was, I think, a medium sized animal, so maybe 30 feet long, something like that. Edmonosaurus can get quite large, you know, 35, 40 feet. Um, and so, you know, any new Edmontosaurus bone is is important. is an important data set. Uh, we actually have a, an interesting track record of finding Edmontosaurus tibiae. Uh, one of the first things that Brady prepped in the lab a, as our part time preparator was an Edmontosaurus tibia. So there's another one on the way, Brady. Mm. And and the, what what's important in science is sample size. And so we really need to build up our sample size of Virtually every part of the skeleton for virtually every animal that we find, because we really don't have many dinosaur skeletons. Mm-hmm. we're really at the at the start of of our science really um, coming into its own in terms of working with a large amount of data, and that does take you know uh, that's a a century mm-hmm. uh, to get to this point, and so we're contributing to that overall accumulation of important scientific specimens, mm-hmm. such as, you know, even, even the tibia contains a lot of information uh, regarding the life and evolution of a dinosaur. So this particular specimen
0: you actually found on your last exhibition? Yes. And so this was work that was done much, much later. Uh, Dr. Seitz, maybe you could help us understand when something is found, but there's no time to do all that you would want to do with it, and you have to leave it for essentially a year. Uh, Is that something that you have to take some responsibility for in trying to uh, leave it uh, in a certain kind of state where you'll be able to find it again?
2: Yes, we are concerned about overwintering, which is what you're talking about. So if we find something on the last day or the next to the last day, as seems to happen quite often, A dinosaur bone does take a lot of work, even if we didn't find it on the second to last day. So a lot of times we will preserve them for the following year. So that involves burying them um, perhaps underneath a tarp. If possible, we'll put a winter jacket, so a plaster and burlap covering that will protect the bone from the elements. And then we'll bury it so that it is protected from the elements. elements and also from anybody who might happen to come by. It's quite unlikely that anyone would happen to come by. We are in a remote area and it's a cattle ranch and the ranchers know their land. So it's not mm-hmm. a big concern, but it's still just something you do for peace of mind, mm-hmm. if nothing else. And then we'll come back the next year with a proper time, proper patience to take good care of the fossil. Very
0: good. So in the case of this tibia, it is out of the ground. And back at
1: Carthage, oh, it sure is uh <laughs> it took us the better part of a day to haul it out, so in the end uh about six or eight of us uh sh- shared in carrying this three hundred pound field jacket out for you know a distance of maybe half a mile or something wow. like that wow. uh so it's it takes uh you know real initiative to even carry out one <laughs> mm-hmm. bone and yes, it's wow. At the museum, and, and some muscle too. Oh yeah, um, Brady described this this
0: term uh, jacket. What what exactly does is does comprises the jacket? What does it look like, and why does it weigh three hundred pounds?
3: So a fossil jacket is mainly just a um, protective shield around both the fossil and some of the um, exterior dirt that might have been underneath it while being pedestaled around, and It's usually the main bulk of the weight is from the bone, and for larger jackets, it can also be even more so the sediment around it just to help keep that bone locked in place rather than falling or jostling around inside the jacket. Um, I know one of our really big ones, our biggest one actually, is going to be something called our upside-down strike jacket, which at this moment we think is around uh, 3,000 pounds. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh my gosh.
3: Yeah, so we're looking to find some funding and try to get that um, airlifted out for 2024 and brought back to the lab. It is a nearly complete uh, Triceratops skull, so we're looking forward to that in the future.
1: So that jacket is back in Montana? It's, yeah, it's... Um, yes, it is jacketed and it is buried, and and I'm currently trying to... Uh, arrange a helicopter lift to get it out of there because it's the largest jacket we've, we've ever made. It's one of our largest specimens. We have carried out large jackets before, but nothing like this. And, I mean, it took six people on one 300-pound jacket carrying out a 3,000-pound jacket. It's just unimaginable. So we really need to do uh, go heavy duty on this. Wow. Well, neat problem, neat challenge to have. It is. Sure. It's a good problem to have. Great.
0: Nathan, I want to return to you for a moment this meticulous work that you did on the the tibia of this uh, duck dinosaur that we were talking about earlier. Uh, what exactly is happening? I mean, how how are you interacting with this bone? With what kind of tools? Uh, I mean, what, what does it take to extricate something like that out of the ground with the care that Brady was talking about earlier?
4: Yeah, so I'm all... First, we start away from the bone. We don't start at the bone, and we start removing little bits of dirt at a time to try to, you know, make it so we have room to work with the bone. So we're taking the emaw trowels and, like, just sort of shaving away at the edges of the emaw, our little dig area. And then once it's time to actually start working on the bone, we're taking tools like a dental pick, and we're, like, chipping away at the rock to and then, like, brushing it away and just slowly working at it like that.
0: Can't imagine. And I suppose that this, uh, if someday you have the opportunity to uh, do some archaeological work in Roman ruins, I suppose at least some of this is the same kind of work and requires the same kind of focus.
4: It certainly does. And what I imagine with uh, Roman stuff, it's going to be a lot easier because I don't have to be working through the Amal hard stone and clay, like I did in Montana, it should be mostly dirt that can easily just get removed with a trowel or some other tool.
0: There you go. So you've you've started at the top of this field. Very good. Uh, Dr. Carr, you were mentioned before we went on the air that that very close to the end of this uh, latest field exhibition, uh, something was uncovered that was uh, quite exciting. Describe it to our listeners.
1: Yeah, on the second last day, a small group uh, myself and three volunteers uh, went to an area that we've never been to before. And I wanted to just pick up everything that, that's there just to get a sense of, you know, of, of this area. And so I told the group, we'll just split up and we'll just walk this ridge and pick up everything in our path. And sh- uh, What do you mean pick up? What do you mean by that term? All right, so bones are eroding out continuously all the time and in different sorts of contexts, but the bottom line is that when we find fossils, we collect them in Ziploc bags. So and you're just talking about things that are laying out. I mean, yep. you can just pick up like you would pick up a seashell. That yes, fits, okay. yeah, yeah, just like that. And so they go into a Ziploc bag, they have a field label, we take locality data. And so we know where everything actually came from and one of my volunteers radioed me and said, "Dr. Carr, I found this bone. It's in pieces. Uh, what do I do?" And I said, "Well, I'll just photograph it and bag it, and then you know, and then everything will be fine." And I continued on my way, and I noticed uh, a while later that my volunteer was still in the same spot, and which was interesting. I thought, okay, he's probably picked up a few more things on that hill. Uh, So the day passed, we left the area. It was very hard to reach. It's an arduous hike. And that evening after dinner, uh, Mason said, Dr. Carr, I'd like you to look at what I picked up because these things have shapes. And he handed me this gallon Ziploc bag full of fragments, which I wasn't expecting. And the first thing I picked out was, or pulled out, was a couple fragments of the ankle and of a juvenile T. Rex. And I didn't say anything because I just, you just don't expect that. And so I thought, I can't, this cannot be what I think it is. And I reached in again. I pulled out uh, an ankle bone or part of an ankle bone. Reached in and put out more parts of that, and I can. And then I just said, "Well, you know, I've there's something happening here." So I dumped the whole bag out, and at the end of the day, uh, what was in the bag was fragments of three leg bones, all from the same side, from the same individual animal. At least a few fragments of vertebra of the same type of animal, and top of the snout. large part of a bone called a nasal bone. And Brady most recently found among the fragments a a bit of tooth. And so all told, what we have is a sample of the parts, all the major parts of a single skeleton of one individual from one spot of a juvenile T. rex, uh, probably 10, 11 years old, 20 feet long. And I asked, my volunteer, um, did you see anything else? Like, was there bone eroding out actively? That's our term for a bone that's, you know, sticking out of the ground and, and eroding and fragmenting. And uh, Mason said he didn't see anything else. Um, but who knows? You know, Our hope is that this is just the start of this animal eroding out. The worst case is this is the last of it but one of the ankle bones looks like it just came out of the ground. Some other fragments are bleached. We have a significantly large bone that is not bleached. So in my view, it's Schrodinger's T. rex. It both does and does not exist, and we won't know till we're back out there in 2024 to go to the locality and see if there's anything in the ground.
0: Wow. So how does one wait for two long years to uh, get a question like that answered. I mean, I, I should think waiting just a year, waiting at all is hard enough, but two years.
1: It's its a challenge. Uh, there's plenty for us to do in the meantime. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, we're chomping at the bit to get back out there. Mm, I bet. So in the meantime,
0: Dr. Seitz and Brady Holbach, uh, what are you busy doing uh, in, your, in your lab?
2: There's usually several different things going on, especially at this time of year. We're both recovering from the field. So yesterday, we spent time going through all the equipment, sorting out what was damaged and what can be used again for next year, making a shopping list, because mm-hmm. we'll always need a little bit more things for the field, mostly replacing what we used up. So we're always doing things like that. We are getting started to have students in the lab, so both from Carthage, sometimes Parkside, other schools in the area, or just me- uh, members of the community will volunteer in the lab. So we're getting started with that. And then we will also be going through what we found at the, uh, throughout this field season. So as Dr. Carr mentioned, sometimes we know what we found in the field because we saw it when we were there or when someone brought it back. But it's a big crew. We cover a big area. Dr. Carr and I can't see everything, can't process everything. So we usually spend a significant part of the fall sorting through all of those gallon Ziploc bags of who knows what amazing things someone might have found and not fully realized what they had. So we might find little bits of crocodile, turtle, fish, hopefully many, even more dinosaurs. And that might influence what we focus on the next time we're back in Montana. So there's a lot of different jobs to do, and a lot of them we're just getting started on now.
0: Wow. And in particular, I should think that that matter of identification is, is incredibly challenging.
2: It's a bit of a learning curve, certainly. And the more we see, the more we start to recognize. So both Dr. Carr and I can tell turtle shell at a glance, and mm-hmm. fish scales are easy, and teeth are really easy. A lot of bones come back broken, so you may mm. only have one end of the bone, and you might have an idea of what it is. Perhaps you can narrow it down to a leg bone of a lizard, but which leg bone or which lizard, maybe we're not so sure, so we might photograph it or send it to an expert in that particular animal, and we do our best, and at least we know to some degree what we have.
0: Very good. So, Brady, how long have you been hard at work at Carthage as, uh, as part-time preparator?
3: So I started as a part-time preparator back in March of this year, so 2022. Um, but I've been volunteering, um, helping out as a, as a volunteer preparator since, I believe, um, fall of 2018. Hmm. I believe that was just after my first dig season.
2: Sounds about right. Yeah.
0: Very good. So is this something that you really hope to devote most or all of your professional life to? Or do you have other aspirations?
3: Um, After doing this for a while now, I actually have come to really like doing this, and it is something I want to focus on and make a job out of, but I still want to um, continue my education and um, get, like, either a master's and doctorate in paleontology and further my understanding, Um, but I might um, venture into more, like, collections management or... Just general uh, museum curatorship for an actual career.
0: Yeah, very good. And how about you, Nathan Hegeman? Uh, who you are, a senior, so soon to graduate. What are your professional aspirations after this? And do dinosaurs figure at all in those uh, plans or dreams?
4: Uh, dinosaurs definitely do f- figure as, but more as volunteer work because my professional work would be all in archaeology. And what I plan on doing is go straight for my masters and start traveling abroad.
0: Mm. Can't wait. Well, we hope that that, uh, that works out for you very well. And in, in the meantime, it was great to meet you today. And, of course, wonderful to get caught up on yet another exciting field exhibition out to Montana by the paleontology program at Carthage, led by Dr. Thomas Carr and Dr. Megan Seitz and Brady Holbach and Nathan Hegeman. Great to have all three of you today on the morning show. We really appreciate and wish all of you well with your further exploits. Thank you very much. Thank you. you thank you. And we'll have part two in just a moment here on WGTD. And to finish out the hour, we're going to be talking about what is the initial offering in UW-Parkside's Foreign Film Series. And we're going to be talking with uh, Professor uh, Joseph Benson, Associate Professor of Literature and Languages at UW-Parkside. And uh, the new coordinator of the Foreign Film Series, uh, Norm Coultier, who led it with such distinction for, I think, nearly 40 years, uh, stepped down uh, this past spring. So anyway, we, uh, next week we'll talk about the whole season, but today, in just these uh, f- few minutes that remain in the hour, we're going to be talking about opening night of this year's Foreign Film Series. Professor Benson, first of all, welcome back to The Morning Show.
5: Thank you. Yeah, good to be here.
0: Good to have you here. So uh, the film series opens up tonight with a film uh, from Japan that sounds really, really interesting. Tell our listeners about it.
5: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, tonight is uh, opening night at 7.30. Uh, Folks uh, who haven't gotten season passes uh, can certainly come to that uh, first film and uh, and get an order form for the season passes or that they can uh, go online um, uh, uh, UW uh, P Foreign Film Series. I can still get a season pass, and we've got a great lineup this year—14 films. And yeah, starting off uh, big here with uh, Drive My Car, uh, which was the um, uh, won the Academy Award um, last year for uh, Best uh, Foreign uh, Film. Uh, checks in at 179 minutes so yeah uh, might pack a lunch uh, on this one um, but yeah it's um, uh, super uh, well uh, received um, and is really kind of a meditation on mourning uh, and a loss uh, out of uh, uh, Japan uh, so I don't want to give uh, too too much away but but like, like I said, it's probably maybe the the film with the most amount of uh, acclaim last year. It was up for, I think, four Academy Awards, including uh, Best Director to um, uh, Ryusika Hamaguchi, um, and, of course, took home the uh, Academy Award for um, Best International Film. So... We're excited about that. And we got got lots, actually, good films and great films in the uh, lineup. Um, Several that were nominated for Academy Awards, including uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, Belfast, which was about the conflict in uh, Northern Ireland, very Mm. autobiographical film. But we got uh, love stories, adventures, comedies, and we even have one documentary Mm. uh, this year.
0: And one of the things we should mention is that uh, the Forum film series is – Back in the theater, so to speak. I mean, where it all began, of course, thanks to COVID, for a while, the foreign Film Series could only be experienced virtually and no longer.
5: Right. That's a big deal. Uh, so we went back partially last year uh, or last uh, season uh, for the second half, but we're in uh, – uh, full full theater, full cinema mode uh, this year for all fourteen films uh, seven in the fall and then seven in the spring. So we're we're really excited about that.
0: So this first film uh, again called Drive My Car from Japan. Uh, the first screening is tonight, but I think there's several screenings open to the public, right?
5: There sure are. That tonight at seven thirty. There's uh, tomorrow Friday at seven thirty, uh, and then there's a uh, uh, Saturday at five and eight, and uh, Sunday at two and five. Like, like I said, if uh, folks haven't got their season passes yet, you can go online, or you can just show up to the film and get an order form there and get your season pass. 30 bucks for 14 films. It's, qu- it's quite a deal. <laughs> an amazing deal. Yeah, yeah. So we would love to see you out there for sure. Very good. Uh,
0: Dr. Joseph Benson from the faculty at UW-Parkside, the, the new coordinator of the Foreign Film Series, and... Uh, We'll have him on next week. I don't recall or have not determined yet exactly what day, but he'll be back next week to talk about the entire season of films and the entire slate of films that are going to be offered uh, this coming season. Professor Benson, thank you for being here today. Appreciate it.
5: Thank you very much.